Hello, and welcome to Natasha Explains It All. Today's episode is episode or part five of the How Criminal Courts Work series. In our last episode, we finished off by talking about how prosecutors take advantage of the fact that many people cannot afford bail um, or are not eligible for bail in the pretrial phase of cases and will use that to coerce people into pleaing and taking a plea um, <clears throat> and often to something that they didn't do. Um, and without full information about what kind of evidence there actually is against them. And I didn't explain in the last episode what exactly a plea is. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. A plea is a, an agreement between the defendant and the government, uh, the prosecutor, that includes an admission. So the person admits to whatever the charges are that are part of the plea agreement. And then it will also include a, 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 a recommended sentence. So basically, it's a bargain. Um, it's saying, I, so-and-so, agree, you know, admit to the following charges. In exchange, the prosecutor is going to do the following. They are going to dismiss these other charges, and they are going to recommend the following sentence. Remember that I mentioned in the prior episode that prosecutors frequently do what's called upcharging, meaning that they'll charge you with a whole ton of a whole ton a whole bunch of different um, charges, and then use the fact that they've brought all kinds of charges against you in what's called upcharging to get you to plea to something because that's really what they care about. They want to get you to plea to something hit their numbers, and process you as quickly as possible so that they can get to the next case. I know that sounds harsh. I know that sounds cold, but that is what happens. <laughs> the vast majority of cases that prosecutors are handling at all levels, that's what they're doing. The vast majority of cases that prosecutors are handling are not the, you know, um, exceptional, high-profile truly serious cases that make up a lot of the news coverage or, you know, sensationalize in TV shows. Most of the time, this is what prosecutors do. Police arrest people, then prosecutors make up whatever charges they want. They can throw the book at someone and then use that, um, use the leverage that they have that the person is detained to get them to plea to something um, because the person is desperate to get out of jail. And, um, and uh, and so they're very likely to to accept a plea. Again, as I talked about in the last episode, the vast vast majority, over ninety percent of cases, are resolved by plea agreement. Very very few cases actually go to trial. And in connection with upcharging is what is called the trial penalty. And in the prior episode, I put in the show notes a link to. Um, uh, an article about the trial penalty. And the trial penalty means that the penalty that people can face simply by exercising their constitutional right to a trial. Because again, prosecutors will set up this system where it's like, okay, well, if you plead to this now, 
we'll dismiss the other charges and you can get out now or soon. But if you don't take the plea, then, and you, you know, decide to fight it at trial, which who knows how long that's going to be, then you're going to be facing much more serious charges and looking at potentially much, much, much longer um, in prison. And so a lot of people make the decision to get out and plea to something, um, even, uh, even if they didn't do it. Um, and please, um, as I was saying, is this like a contract, this bargain between the prosecutor and the defendant? It's not an equal playing field whatsoever, because again, uh, generally speaking, prosecutors are not required to reveal what evidence they have before the person can, uh, m- so that the person can make an informed decision about whether it's worth taking the, uh, taking the risk of going to trial. And when you accept a plea agreement, they do vary from place to place. So again, I'm speaking in generalities, but they often require you to give up a lot of your other rights in exchange for the plea. So one of the common rights that it pleas often require you to give up is your right to appeal. So for example, If you had gone to trial and you were convicted, okay, um, and you could appeal that, you know, you could appeal your conviction uh, on, you know, whatever basis that you, you know, believe that the jury was biased or the, you know, government withheld uh, exculpatory evidence, exculpatory evidence, meaning evidence that would have demonstrated your innocence or or, or other, you know, bases to appeal your conviction. Well, when you accept a plea agreement, you're basically, in most cases, you're signing away your rights to appeal, which is deeply problematic if for some reason you later find out, right, that the government didn't have (laughs) proper evidence um, to convict you if the arrest was unlawful or a variety of other reasons. There's a lot that prosecutors... um, uh, put in please a lot of giving up a lot of your constitutional rights um, in exchange for lesser punishment. And the reality is that courts don't have to accept pleas. In practice, most courts just rubber stamp pleas. If the government and the defendant have agreed to a plea, the court will just accept it and we'll rubber stamp it basically, and we'll go with whatever the government's recommendation is in terms of the sentence that is, you know, as part of the plea agreement. But the courts don't have to. Um, The court can, the the court can, um, can accept the plea agreement, but impose a different sentence or reject the plea agreement in its entirety. And um, again, most of the time they'll just rubber stamp it and take the plea as is. Um, uh, because again, like it's all about processing cases. It's not actually about, um, uh, enforcing people's constitutional rights. Um, and I have kind of a crazy, uh, an extreme, um, an example of, of where um, a judge should have rejected a plea agreement 
and yet didn't um, for whatever reason, reason, resulting in massive injustice. Um, and this was um, someone that I uh, represented in a resentencing matter many, many years after he was incarcerated. But basically, he this was a federal drug case, uh, height of the war on drugs in the 1990s. And the prosecutor had charged him with um, uh, with a, with a, had charged him with a drug charge. And because the prosecutor in her discretion had included some prior offenses of his, it triggered under the law, a, a mandatory life sentence. Again, it was based on the prosecutor's discretion that she included these that she was that she was counted these like prior offenses and calculating what the sentence would be. So there's an introduction another introduction of discretion and this concept of it's not quite upcharging because she wasn't adding additional charges. But anyway, the the point is is that it was within prosecutorial discretion about how to count prior convictions along with this current charge. And um, this person, uh, my former client, his attorney at the time, I don't, I wasn't there, I don't know exactly the circumstances, but clearly wasn't advised well because he agreed to a plea that would be to a life sentence in exchange for the opportunity to cooperate, quote unquote, cooperate with the government. And if in the event the government found that his cooperation was noteworthy, then the government could file this motion um, to reduce his sentence. That's insane. No one should accept that kind of plea agreement. Why? Because if he had gone to trial, we're talking about the trial penalty, right? The difference between kind of the benefit that you would get from a plea agreement versus what you would be facing at trial, there's no difference. He didn't get any benefit from this plea. He pled to the highest possible sentence, which was a life sentence. There was no death penalty on the table for this. And the idea that that would be, that he would have, quote unquote, the opportunity to cooperate with the government and provide information to the government, basically ratting on other people, that the government could then in its discretion decide whether that was important enough to warrant the government filing this other motion to reduce the sentence <clears throat> is nuts. And of course, what ended up happening when he took this plea and then whatever cooperation that he engaged in with the government, surprise, surprise, the government didn't find that that was sufficient and never filed that motion to reduce his sentence. And as a result, um, ended up spending almost 28 years in prison on a drug offense. Um, and that was an occasion where the judge should have rejected that plea agreement, should have said, this is insane. Like, you are pleading, you are pleading to the worst possible outcome. What, what, why? <laughs> And I will reject this. You need to go back to the drawing board, like the prosecutor. This is not a this is not fair. Clearly, there is something going on here. Um, 
Because you don't have to agree to a plea agreement in order to cooperate with the government to provide the government information. Like, the government will take whatever you say. Um, anyway, um, um, just using that example to illustrate this dynamic that pleas are not just because someone come, someone, uh, a defendant ag agrees to a plea agreement with the prosecution. The court still has discretion about whether to accept that plea or not. Um, and there have been cases where, you know, judges will reject a plea because they think it's too, it's too light. I, I can't think of this, this specific example, but I do recall reading something about like one of the January 6th defendants and the court rejected one of the pleas because they thought the sentence was too light um, for, you know, the, the, uh, the offense um, that the person had pled to. So. Anyway, so a little bit about that on the plea agreements. Now, in the event that the person uh, does not take a plea, or even if they do, during this time that the person is in jail, okay, we're still talking about the pretrial period here, okay? Um, and they're in jail because they couldn't afford bail or because their charges made them ineligible for bail, some states and some places basically have blanket prohibitions. If you're charged with X, like you can't, you can't get out no matter what. Um, or the court just, or they weren't able to afford bail um, or some other circumstance. Um, for example, they were revoked from pretrial release because they failed a drug test. Um, they failed a drug test or they couldn't keep up with their pretrial fees you know, something like that. And then now they're revoked. Um, and maybe the judge now has set no bail or increased their bail to a level that they can't, um, that they can't afford. Whatever the reason, if the person is still in jail in this pretrial phase, I want to talk about a little bit more about jail life and the reality, again, of how much this is just like a money-making operation. And what do I mean by that? <clears throat> in most places in the country, if you are incarcerated at a jail, to make any type of phone call um, to a loved one, you know, to a friend, to have any human contact outside of the jail is going to cost you. Some jails will have some free calls or there's like a certain number of minutes that you are allowed but in most places, you have to you have to pay for phone calls, and this isn't like your cell phone plan, you know, that has unlimited minutes and it's you know actually quite cheap to make phone calls. No, the there are very few companies that um, are involved in uh, the jail prison phone call industry. They basically have. Um, not a monopoly because there's more than one of them, but they basically engage in a lot of antitrust behavior <clears throat> to um, keep prices artificially high and charge exorbitant, exorbitant rates. I'm talking dollars per minute here. Um, and it's become so bad um, that the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission, has even gotten involved to attempt um, to regulate um, this industry because they are so predatory. 
And I'm going to include in the show na- excuse me, in the show notes, a link to the website of an organization called Worth Rises. And Worth Rises is one of many organizations that are working to end this monetization of incarceration, to go after corporations that profit off of um, people being incarcerated. And they have led several campaigns to make jail and prison calls free, as they should be, because it shouldn't cost you any money to stay in touch with your loved ones. And, you know, if you need an additional reason as to why that is, there's lots of data out there that shows that when people who are incarcerated have more contact with their loved ones, they're calmer, there are less disciplinary issues, there's less violence, people are in better moods and therefore like the, the, the jail itself is a safer environment for everyone involved. And you can even think about your own experience, even if you've never been incarcerated, to relate to that on some level, right? Like thinking of, think about the pandemic and how isolated um, you may have felt for a long time. Now imagine that to call a loved one, to call a friend, to call your parents, to call your partner, you had to pay dollars per minute. And like at most, you could talk to them for like 15 minutes at a time, right? Um, And a lot of people were also unemployed during the pandemic, so didn't have any money coming in except for possibly unemployment. I mean, the stress of that would really get to you. And as you can imagine, the stress of that also gets to people who are incarcerated. And that stress manifests itself, right, in people being anxious, in people being tense, in people being very short-tempered. They're in very crowded conditions. And so that can easily contribute to fights or people um, acting out um, and, you know, creating a dangerous environment for everyone. In the studies that they've shown of the places that have made uh, calls free, I believe Worth Rises had a successful campaign in Connecticut um, to eliminate fees in in, uh, jails. And I believe that in California prisons, not California jails, in California state prisons, that's being implemented now to make calls free, that behavioral incidents right, have gone down dramatically, like people are calmer and happier. And there's also tons of data out there that the more that people are connected to their social safety net, you know, the people that care about them, the the better they do upon reentry, which makes sense, again, right, the more isolated we are, um, the more problems that can cause for us. We are social creatures, and we need to be connected to people. And so if someone has been able to maintain their relationships with their partner or their children or their parents or siblings, whoever, right, when it comes time then for them to be released, it'll be a smoother transition because they've stayed in touch. They've been able to, you know, to the extent that's possible, maintain that relationship and maintain that communication. So, um, but, you know, free calls within jails um, are still the exception not the norm. And as if that wasn't enough, that's not going to be the only thing that you're going to be paying for while you're in jail. You are also going to have to pay for your food. And 
someone might say, well, wait, 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 wait. I, I thought that's what my like tax dollars were going to, right? Like, don't we house them and don't we feed them? Like, isn't that part of the state's obligation? Um, and the answer is yes and no. The reality is, is that many jail, well, across the board, jail food in general, as well as prison food is horrific. Um, and it is often not only a very, very poor quality, the portions are often very small um, and are, are, are often like not enough to keep someone from going hungry. Like the food is not only like poor quality. I don't, I don't mean by that just that it's like bland, you know, it's not very flavorful. No, no, no. I mean, like, it's not cooked properly. There might be bugs in the food. The food might be rotten. The food might be expired. Like, it's not safe to eat the food. It's not that it's just like, you know, they didn't put enough spices in it, okay? And then it's not enough. And many jails will also use, even though it's illegal to do this, will also punish people for, you know, whatever they believe to be behavioral infractions by denying people food. Um, and so as a result, well, excuse me, it's not only the food, but then also in terms of, um, hygiene products, people are issued very, 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 very basic hygiene products. And so as a result of that chronic deprivation, most people, if they have any funds whatsoever, will spend their money in addition to trying to call their family. Um, we'll also spend it on what's called commissary. Commissary is basically like the store that's within uh, jails and prisons. And commissaries tend to be run by private corporations, and they get to decide what the prices are. Again, there's no like regulation on this. I mean, if there is, it's not doing much because the prices are ex exorbitant like much, much more than you would pay if you were at a no normal grocery store. Think of it a little bit how like, you know, when you go to the airport, the prices of things seem to be astronomically higher than if you bought the same item, you know, uh, just in a normal grocery store. Think that, but even higher. And it's a very limited menu as well. Anyway, the point being that many, many people rely on commissary to be able to supplement their diet and to be able to like literally keep themselves clean, buying shampoo, buying soap, buying toothpaste, buying deodorant, because these things are not provided, uh, often not provided or not provided in sufficient quantities um, to keep people like physically clean, to keep people hygienic. And the prices are set at these astronomical levels that are even expenses for quote unquote, like people on the outside, like you and me, but are even more astronomical for people on the inside, given that if they have any income coming in at all, meaning they work a job at the jail, they are likely making cents per hour. Let me repeat that. If, if they're getting paid at all, and if they at all have a job at the jail, they're likely being paid cents per hour. And so they are going to probably have to rely on family members and friends outside of jail to send them money. And then they'll use that money to pay for commissary items, which, as I mentioned, tend to be largely um, food items 
as well as um, toiletries, personal hygiene products. And of course, um, because (laughs) why wouldn't this be the case? Many of the corporations that are responsible for jail food are also responsible for commissary. So they have this super perverse incentive to make the jail food as unappealing as possible because that will drive more people to spend money on commissary. And one of the big offenders in this area is the company called Aramark. And you may have heard of Aramark because Aramark also, um, um, Aramark has lots of contracts with like public school, public schools, you know, to provide the cafeteria food, a lot of stadiums contract with Aramark, you know, to provide food at stadiums. Aramark's everywhere, but they also do a ton of business with jails and prisons. And they are a incredibly scandalous company. Um, one scandal after another of just how horrific their business practices are. And one of them is, is that in many of the places that they operate, they're responsible for the jail food, so the food that is provided free to inmates and that they are legally required to provide. And yet Aramark is also responsible for the commissary which inmates have to pay for. So Aramark has all the incentive in the world to make the jail food terrible so that people will rely more and more on commissary to be able to just survive. Um, And that's allowed um, because, again, the entire purpose, the main purpose of the system is to just make as much money as possible. So we talked about how if you are incarcerated, you are going to be paying for a lot of stuff. We talked about phone calls as something you're likely to have to pay for. We just talked about um, how uh, you're likely to have to pay for your food and hygiene products as well um, because jails will deliberately deprive you um, of those things to force you into paying um, for commissary. And there's many other examples of this. Another uh, increasing trend is that jails and prisons are getting rid of paper mail and instead having all the mail scanned by private corporations that then charge you to use, to access your mail. Um, And I'm going to include in the show notes a link to a piece by the Prison Policy Initiative about this. Um, So you can see more information about the various states that have adopted this so far and what the, the, the companies are. The big ones are Text Behind as well as Securus. And so basically what happens there is a loved one sends a letter to their incarcerated loved one And they have to send it to this private company. And there's like a fee associated with doing that. Not just like the stamp, like the fee associated with processing that. Then the private company scans the mail. And then the person who is on the, uh, who is incarcerated will then view that mail on a tablet. Lots of jails and prisons now use tablets as another way to make money because you have to you have to spend money to be able to access the tablet. So anyway, you access your mail through this tablet and then the incarcerated person 
if they're going to write a letter to send back to their loved one, goes through the same process. They write their letter, it goes to the private corporation, the private corporation scans it, and then sends it to the loved one on the outside, and the loved one on the outside has to pay to be able to view the document. And neither the incarcerated person nor the person on the outside gets to actually keep the physical mail. And like, you know, oftentimes these scans are really poor quality. Um, and we don't actually know if they, you know, discard this mail or if they're sorted, you know, they're including it. So there's really serious privacy issues there as well. Even though in general, prison mail is reviewed, all prison mail is opened and reviewed, but this is a whole other level because it's all being digitized. And then you're also losing that really important tactile experience of receiving the mail and keeping your mail, you know, and if there were any photos included, right, like that can be an absolute lifeline for someone who is incarcerated. But instead of just going through the normal mail process now, many, many states are turning to private corporations to handle all of the mail. And on false premises, again, they say that it's for jail safety issues, um, but really there's no basis for that. And the main driver of contraband coming into jails and prisons is prison staff, are the prison guards who come in and out every day. And privatizing mail services doesn't address that. All right. Um, so I'm going to pause there. We'll pick it up next time talking more about the costs associated with staying incarcerated uh, before turning to additional steps in how the criminal court process uh, progresses. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.